Hello and welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze is a group of 30 volunteers working to help connect readers, writers, and independent bookstores during the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. We've been so fortunate to interview hundreds of authors on our live stream feeds on Facebook and YouTube throughout the past year, from debut writers to bestsellers and everyone in between. Today, we're spotlighting the phenomenal talents and winning personality of Joyce Maynard, the New York Times bestselling author of 18 novels and memoirs. Two of her books, Labor Day and To Die For, were made into hit movies, and her latest, Count the Waves, is due out in June 2021. Joyce sat down to Zoom with the Mighty Blaze co-founder and best-selling author, Caroline Levitt, on a warm day during the quarantine to talk about personal and public lives, an author's duty to tell the truth, and the unique beauty and pain of finding and losing true love. So settle in and enjoy the conversation and the tweeting birds as I pass the blaze torch to Caroline and her very special guest, Joyce Maynard. I'm Caroline Levitt, co-founder with Jenna Blum of A Mighty Blaze. And behind the scenes, we have our wonderful producers, Jenna Payone and Tom Shampoo. And I can't tell you how excited I am to be talking with Joyce Maynard. Um, I actually interviewed you, Joyce, once before a long time ago at a book festival. I remember. I remember I did it with my phone and you actually sang on that recording and I have it someplace. I, I I'll, I'll find any opportunities. <laughs> Okay, so first I'm going to do your bio, which is very long and impressive. Okay, a native of New Hampshire, Joyce Maynard began publishing her stories in magazines when she was 13 years old. She came to attention with the publication I'll just, of- her... I'll just point out that that's 53 years ago. <laughs> you can do the math. <laughs> with her cover story, an 18-year-old looks back on life. And I have to say that everyone I know saw that cover and still looks at that cover. It's a very young Joyce in these wonderful sneakers in this great casual pose. That It's an iconic photo. It's totally it's iconic. that everybody you know is over 60, Caroline. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> Since then, Joyce has been a reporter and columnist for the New York Times, a syndicated newspaper columnist whose domestic affairs column appeared in over 50 papers nationwide. She contributes to NPR and national magazines like Vogue, New York Times, and many more. And she's also a fixture at Moth Storytelling Group. Joyce is the author of 17 novels, including The Novel to Die For and the best-selling memoir, At Home in the World, which was translated into 16 languages. To Die For was adapted for the screen by Buck Henry and was directed by Gus Van Sant. And Joyce can be seen in the role of Nicole Kidman's lawyer. Labor Day was also adapted and directed into a wonderful movie. Um, and Joyce even offered instructions for making the pies. And we're going to talk about pies a little later. 
Joyce is the mother of three grown children. She runs workshops and memoir at her home. She also has three online live courses under JoyceMaynardCreativeLives.com. Um, she's a fellow of McDonough Colony and Yaddo. And here are the titles of her books, so get set. Under the Influence, After Her, The Good Daughter, The Best of Us, Baby Love, To Die For, At Home in the World, Labor Day, The Cloud Chamber, The Usual Rules, Where Love Goes, Internal Combustion, Domestic wow. Affairs. Welcome, Joyce. We're, we're so thrilled to have you at the Mighty Blaze. Everybody's oh. really excited. I have so many questions to ask you. It's so. such a pleasure. You know, my only complaint with the line of work that we both share is that it, it's not very sociable. And I actually am quite a sociable person. Right. So this is a great moment for me when I get right. to- Right. The great thing about this kind friend of, and maybe readers as well. And this kind of sociability is great too because you're at your home. So you can always I say, am. excuse me, and go in the other room. <laughs> so I want to say you have one of the most interesting lives of any author that I know because it seems to be as if your life is an axe. And I don't know if you'd agree. It seems like the first act was that um, iconic, an 18 year old looks back at, looks back at life, which was actually controversial because a lot of people felt, I mean, first of all, that article, if people out there haven't read it, you should read it immediately. It's wonderful and it's online. But a lot of people were very taken aback and thought, what does an 18 year old know about life? <laughs> and they were right. <laughs> I don't know so much about that. The second act of your life was all your years with Salinger, and you produced this amazing... Actually, only, I have to say, I was only with Salinger for a year. For a year, it, really? That, that it, defined me in many people's eyes. It doesn't define me for myself, but... That's so um, interesting. I, I um, After I published that first article in the New York Times, which was 1972, um, I got a letter from J.D. Salinger pretty heady stuff. I wasn't actually a big fan. I, I wasn't, you know, there were many people who, you know, who, for whom Catcher in the Rye was the Bible. That wasn't so right. really what I responded to much more than the name was the, the way he spoke to me as a kindred spirit. And I had been a very lonely, outsider, isolated kind of girl. And this was a man who sort of said, I understand you, something that I hope you can hear the birds and stuff. Oh, the so birds are amazing. embarked on a correspondence. I dropped out of Yale to, I had a full scholarship, that one kills me, um, to move in with him. He was 53 then. I was a very young 18. But I was only with him for a year. Um, that's, that's amazing. Then he, as, as it's a story that I tell in At Home in the World, that he sent me away uh, in a very painful fashion yeah. a year later when I was 19. And uh, for 25 years, it was not a story I told. So the really controversial book, I would say, was not the early, you know, the first, the 18-year-old story. It was my 42-year-old self finally giving myself permission to tell the truth. But that was, to me, that was incredibly brave and incredibly honest. And the, the really interesting thing is there were people saying how they were, how dare this woman take oh, down yeah. our hero. But the thing was, you were the victim in so many ways. You were this tender young girl. And that book is aching when you read it. You just want to, you know, rescue you and so well, you ways. did Caroline I have to say that was not that was not the predominant response to that book the 
Those were different times. Um, I was going to say it was different times. That was, was 1998. Was male stuff. Yeah, it was very and, male centered. Um, you know, Maureen Dowd in the New York Times had an editorial about me in which she named my 18 year old self as a predator. Um, That's incredible. Very different um, times. It, obviously, we've gone a long way since then. Um, although I have to say that in certain ways, that story has dogged me all my life. It's, it's not the thing that defines me for my friends, for my, my family, certainly, or for readers who really know my work. But to many people, if you said my name, they'd say one thing. She slept with J.D. Salinger. It's, of course, I find that a pretty offensive way to define a, any woman. Of course. Um, uh, but even now, when, when a novel comes out, and I, I write both memoir and fiction, as, as you know, but, but most of my recent books, with the exception of the one about the death of my husband, have been works of fiction. The first paragraph will still be that darned Salinger story. And um, so I, I, I felt that it was important, knowing that that happens, to speak of it, and I do, and mm -hmm. I speak about what it says about our view of women, um, that, that I would have been viewed as the, the, the predator or the exploiter. Um, right. It was before Me Too. If that book had been written today, it would have had a very different so. uh, thing coming in. And then your third act is your marriage to Jim, which was just magical and amazing. And you wrote the most beautiful book, The Best of Us, about your time together, which to me was so brave and so honest and so just you made him come alive on the page oh, and I wanted to ask you with something like that to me to be a writer is to tell the truth it's to talk about everything and I know with that book um some people thought it was oversharing which made me oh I also want, I want listeners to realize that I asked Joyce Joyce if I could ask this question first no <laughs> she question, said, okay. honestly um, but actually I I found that really offensive and I also when people said that that it was oversharing and I also found it ignorant because it's a writer's duty to go to all the places where many people would like to go but they're afraid to go or they can't go it's one um, of the reasons why i teach memoir and that is a real labor of love doing that that i i want to nobody should need to be given permission but i think many of us do especially women um to be told you get to tell your own story nobody should ever silence your voice um and the most difficult and painful stories are usually the most important yes. to explore. I think so too. I think that book was just beautiful. I want to talk that about- was my, That was my second marriage, I, I should say. I, I was married when I was young um, mm -hmm. to an age appropriate man and, and uh, had my three children with my first husband and but I had been on my own for 25 years at the point and that that's you, an that's part of the beauty of the book that you had a love been. story really it's a love it's story it's a Actually, beautiful today, love story today would be uh my my husband Jim's 68th birthday he died four years ago next week I read that on your um, page and um so it's a very I mean of course there's enormous sadness always about the loss of him but 
But more so, I feel so lucky, lucky. to have found out what it was to have a good relationship. I had to wait a long time for that. Um, and um, it actually has, I consider the four years since Jim's death to have been some of the, the richest of my life. I, I, I'm very aware of the fact that every day is precious and I, I really try to live by that. I think, I think, you know, that people have been through traumatic things. It's almost as if a protective layer of life has been torn from you and you feel and see things more, but you also, do you feel that you recognize others who have been through the same kind of trauma or whatever? It's sort of well, like, like, recognizes sure. like, yeah. First of all, I don't know who escapes heartbreak and hardship at some point right. in their lives it, it it will come um to some more more painfully than to others mm -hmm. um, right now as a nation we are certainly experiencing collectively you know a um the you know the the multi-generational you know hundreds year long pain of african americans um and as we should um but it's my job to acknowledge everybody's pain. I, um, uh, and that's really what I do when I teach memoir is to, is to offer a safe landing place to explore the stories that all of us have. Um, I think too, when you tell the truth, it's incredibly freeing. You yeah. have, you have one, on one of your pages, you had um, something about in writing your story, you listed three things that I thought was just great. The first thing was stop worrying about being judged. I thought that's so great. Don't think about anybody else. Get over your fear of revealing embarrassing truths about yourself. Yes. And deal with loneliness and find your tribe. I think those are like completely beautiful. Um, and incidentally, of course, I didn't, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't born with those abilities. I was, <laughs> I, I come to that knowledge from having been a person who, who very much wanted to, to please, to be liked, to be the good girl. Um, my first book, which was published in 1973, um, written while I was living with Salinger is a, it was called a memoir, looking back, it's called, um, but and and there are many parts of that book that I have a lot of affection for. But in the 160 pages of my first crack at ostensibly a memoir, I never mention the fact that I grew up in an alcoholic family. I didn't want to hurt my my family. I was I wasn't even keeping a secret of my own. I was keeping their secret, my father's secret. Um, and I at most dramatically probably I did not mention that I was living with a 53 year old man at the time who happened to be jd salinger you won't find that in those, that book although i was living in his house I, so I was a secret keeper and it's because i have lived that way that i feel so compelled to help other writers or people who may not call themselves writers but they're people who have lived stories mm -hmm. to explore their story honestly yeah i think it's really it powerful hurts. and really free but there's there's I'm, I'm here to say that as, as costly as it was to my career, and it was very, uh, when I published at Home in the World, I would never undo that, having written that book. Um, and I, 
it was really telling my own story that um, freed me to tell all the other stories that weren't mine. You know, I, after At Home in the World, I wrote a whole bunch of novels and I couldn't have done that before. That's interesting. I love that you said that. Telling your own story freed you up to tell the stories of others. So one of my questions was about what's the, what's the different feeling for you and the difference in like writing these intense, brave memoirs and then writing these intense, brave novels. How does it feel different for you? And is there one you prefer? Definitely not one I prefer any more than I have a favorite child, but um, surprisingly, surpri they're surprisingly similar in one way, Caroline, and mm -hmm. you can probably, I mean, I'm sure, of course you can relate to this because you're a fiction writer. It's my first responsibility, well, after being honest, right. is to be a good storyteller. Right. So whether the story is one I have actually lived or one I've invented, I better, I, it's my job to keep you holding onto your seat and turning the pages. And some people I think suppose that if, you're te if they're telling a story from their real life, they're off the hook that way. They, they just need to sort of report what happened. Oh no. Uh, it is, and I know you know this, but it's, it's one of the most common um, misconceptions of people who show up at my at my classes and they're people come at all different levels some people who've never written anything since high school and I love that 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 a memoir is telling what happened in your life and of course it's it's no. much more than that it's and it's not telling everything it is identifying one particular journey um, and and uh, I think maybe I'm in that very small group that I have not had a job, a, a salary job since 1977. I was briefly a newspaper reporter, but basically I've worked very hard. I was never supported by any man. Um, I was a single mother. I was always working, but I didn't have a paycheck. And I, I felt very literally, if I don't keep readers interested in what I have to say, my children don't have a roof over their head. They probably still would have eaten, but... Um, and I think actually in retrospect, it was a very good discipline for me. I didn't have the luxury of just sort of, um, loving, wonderful, poetic, lyrical language if it didn't serve story. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm really all about, I'm not all about story, but story is really important to me. Are you self-taught as a writer? Did you take classes nope. when you were young? I'm, I have the best teacher in the world, my mother. Oh, I love that. My mother, um, my mother was the most fabulous storyteller I've ever met. Um, and she, like so many of the mothers of, well, you're a little younger than me, but of my generation, um, she was a woman of vast gift and talent and drive and ambition and education. She had a PhD from Radcliffe, couldn't wow. get a job. She could not get a job. My mother sold encyclopedias door to door. And like so many of those mothers, she put her prodigious energy into guess who. So from the age of about three, she worked with me on my, on my manuscripts. I was giving dictation and she was typing. Wow. And, uh, my first publication was in Humpty Dumpty magazine, actually. Um, oh. And it, I mean, I don't recommend this, incidentally. This is not what I replicated with my own kids, but... But my mother 
if there was a religion in our household, and I think there was, it was language, it was love of language. And um, we, the way other people, you know, go off and play sports and, you know, camp out. And we sat around the living room reading our manuscripts out loud. And I have never, I've worked with some great editors, but nobody ever, the likes of Fridell Maynard when I was 12 years old. So no, I didn't take writing classes. I, I was, I'm not a college graduate. I actually have gone back to college. I'm, I'm an undergraduate. I again. know, I know. But, but, but I'm not studying writing. I, heaven forbid, I want to study everything else. Um, I was really taught by a woman who, who put everything, who wanted for me everything that she didn't have for herself. It's, it's, that's a heavy burden, incidentally. Um, it's, I felt this huge sense of obligation to make good for her. Um, it's a wonderful story. It's just it, a wonderful um, bond. My mother has been dead for 30 years, but I part of why I teach, as I do now in this place, actually, this the reason I'm in Guatemala oh, right now is because I, I came down here to teach my annual week-long workshop here in March and stayed. Um, I hear my mother's voice in my ear and I, I, I try to impart to the women that I work with and occasionally men um, in one week or in a three-day workshop, everything that I had 17 years off um, when I was a kid. My so sister lovely. is a writer too, incidentally. And oh, she is. That's so great. Um, I got the United States. She got Canada. She's um, Ah, Okay. <laughs> Well-known writer in Canada. Um, the, the next question I want to ask is one that you actually asked me to ask you, which is a very great question, which is, what is a writer to do in these terrible times? How can okay. we best yes, I really, I have so much to say about this. And I, I've been thinking about this a great deal, partly because I just finished a novel that is set in, I'm in Guatemala right now, and it's set in an unnamed Central American country. Mm -hmm. And the main character is a woman significantly younger than me, um, who, but having some traits of mine, as all of our characters do, and some that are nothing like me at all, who comes to this, um, this little village on a lake in this unnamed Central American country in the aftermath of a, of a, of a terrible tragedy. I won't go into what it is, but she's running away from the world and her life. Okay. And she stays at a a very strange hotel run by a much older American expat woman. Um, and I'm not going to give away anything because, of course, I want everybody to read the novel, but it right. won't weigh anything to say that the woman drops dead and she discovers she's inherited the hotel. She was <gasps> the only guest at the hotel. And suddenly, here she is in this tiny little Central American village. And, and the novel goes on to explore what happens and how life in that village heals her in some surprising way. She, she faces some huge challenges and some tragedy. Okay, so that's the basic situation. Um, I, I showed this novel to uh, my agent, a different generation from me, although right. I, I, I'm very happy and proud to say that many of my friends are much, much younger, especially because I'm in college. So I'm, okay. not, I'm not disconnected from the world okay. of the millennial. But her first response was deep concern that I, a white woman, would tell a story set in a Latin country. Now, I have to say, and of course, she invoked 
what everybody invokes when they're talking about, you know, the, the dangers of appropriation, the novel right. American Dirt. American Dirt, right. Which I haven't read, but which, whose, whose author I will defend forever for the right to tell that story. Mm -hmm. Me, the job of a writer is not simply to tell what she has already lived and knows, but to explore imaginatively worlds she doesn't. Um, that said, I would never have attempted, I would never have presumed to write a novel um, appropriating the point of view of an indigenous person in this village, one of the men that are currently working, you mm -hmm. may see behind me. Um, I, I can't do that. Um, I haven't, I have only, I think, twice written a black character. Um, and I, I feel it would be once again, presumptuous of me to mm -hmm. attempt to portray experiences and voices that are too far from my own. I grew up in a very white place, New Hampshire. I, um, I don't think black readers want that from me. Um, and I actually, in recent years, I have felt that I'm finally able to go further afield from the world that I've inhabited for the last 66 years. But let's face it, I'm always gonna be a white woman and I, I could either beat myself up about that forever and just slink right. off in a corner <laughs> somewhere and say, I, you know, I have nothing to say, or I'll say, I'll tell my stories. I will defend and fight for forever the right of people of color and Asian people and LGBT and everybody who has a story to tell, whether it's memoir or fiction, to tell their story. Um, but I, I, I'm deeply saddened and troubled by what's happening in publishing that, that many writers, and you and I are in this category, who, who are not, who do not fall into the, the, the diversity category. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I could name all sorts of ways that my experience is, you know, has, has carried my own kinds of sorrows and challenges, but I don't, I'm not going to presume to know black experience and I'm not right. going to try and tell it. Um, actually, I really, I celebrated, Jody Picoult did um, publish a couple of years ago, a novel that I thought was very brave. And some people gave her a really hard time for doing it in which she did make that big leap. Um, but in any case, my novel is about a white expatriate woman in this. So why did your friend object to it then? Um, it, it, what she said was that the world is going to give me a really hard time. And to that, I said, you know what? And this goes back to what you were They've saying. They've already done that. I can't please everybody. <laughs> I'm right. So be it. If there are people who are going to say um, about me that I'm appropriating, I will... Um, I will accept that I can't please everybody. Um, and I, I feel as if it is my job to tell the stories that I can tell well. And um, I will not take up the space of other people who have different stories to mm -hmm. tell theirs. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm pleased to see, even just in the last couple of weeks, the, you know, the degree to which um, the world of, of publishing and reading is acknowledging the need for um, examining more closely those other stories and those other books. I think it's been happening for a long time, actually. I, um, I'm taking classes at Yale. I took a class this spring until Yale went online in the literature of the Black South. That class wouldn't have existed at Yale when I That's was there. That's right. 
in nineteen. It did not exist. Nobody was reading Zora Neale Thurston. Hurston. So um, what is this? What is the second novel? What is the second so novel? Uh, so in any case, I'm, you know, in in answer to your question, I'll just say that I think it's paralyzing to start trying to second guess. Yes. The readers, you write the story you must write, and some people won't like it. And you cannot predict the marketplace. You cannot let your creative energy be shaped by the marketplace. I always, there are readers that I hear from all the time. I have a really wonderful world of readers that I know. And a surprisingly big one. When I go on a book tour, I, I see friends all over the country at this point because I've been doing it a long time. But so I'll think about Amy Persichini in, in Kansas or Helene mm -hmm. Banner in Florida. But I will not try to please some critic or some literary thinker uh, about okay. whether I get to do it. The other book, which is currently called The Cork People, is an examination of a family over the course of several decades of a young marriage, parenthood, divorce, and the aftermath of a divorce, which is no doubt informed in many ways by my own experience of mm -hmm. marriage and divorce and being a single parent and and the the enduring reverberations of a divorce not just when you sit those children down and say your dad and I aren't going to live together anymore but sometimes 30 years later the ways right. that it's still it still haunts a family. So it's um it's the most ambitious novel I've ever written. And I can't editing. wait. And I, can't um, wait. I think that's the one that's gonna come out first, which would be next summer. Okay. We're and actually, actually, I'm really interested to hear, there's a big controversy going on in my life, in my little world, um, about the title. I believe this book should be called The Cork People, and I can explain why it's okay. Um, but um, I have also been told by some people that that's a really terrible title. So, Why? Well, um, it's not about people from Cork, Ireland, I should say that. Okay. The, um, okay. The, the main character in the book is a woman, the mother, who lives in rural New Hampshire, raising her children in a place very similar to where I raised mine with, with their father. And every spring in the, the first week when the snow has melted, she and her children have a tradition that they make little paper boats and they make little people to go in the boats and they go down to this brook that's just down the dirt road from where they live and they launch these boats into the water and they run along the edges of the brook and follow them for as long as they can. And the people in the boats are made of cork. They're, they're cork. Oh, yeah. They're made of wine corks. And of course, some of the boats make it, and some of the people make it, and some do not. Um, and that's why the book is called The Cork People. And I don't think I need to explain the metaphor that that's a lot like what happens. No, I think it's a great title. But it is, it's baffling. I know that. And I'm but sure when okay. I, I said The Cork People, you had no idea what I was talking about, right? <laughs> You have two questions from the audience. Oh, great. Right. The first okay. question is, how is your writing, how is your writing affected you during this pandemic? Are you writing more or less? I could hardly write more. <laughs> I'm <laughs> writing all the time. Yes. Been, um, I'm a, I'm a pretty, um, 
prolific writer in general, but but for me, this has been a real gift that I've been in this beautiful, quiet place. There's a hawk circling overhead. There's a pelican that just landed on the lake. Gorgeous. Um, and it's very, um, although there is um, enormous struggle going on here in this village, it's not really struggle with the virus. It's the poverty that comes with mm -hmm. all the tourist money having dried up. There were Americans traveling here who have left and hotels are closed, restaurants are closed, people have lost their jobs. Um, oh, here comes a kitten. Ah, she's going away. Um, anyway, um, so I, I am in a very quiet place, removed from the world, and um, I don't see the name of that reader, but... Um, it just has a question from the audience. <laughs> um, but I, um, so I, I've, as I said, I, I finished a whole novel, a draft of the novel that I call The Bird Hotel while I was here. And I'm sort of exploding with ideas. Yeah. Rena, Rena is the name of the first question. Rena, yes. Thank you, Rena. <laughs> uh, they have another great question. What has Joyce done? Oh, some of this you talked about already, but this is kind of like edging in a different way. What has Joyce done to keep herself steady to write, especially when she's been targeted with ridiculous criticism for telling her stories? So I guess it's like, how do you keep yourself steady? How do you keep those voices? I think, well, um, the big moment, the big moment of walking through the fire was the fall of 1998 when At Home in the World was published. And I was then, I guess I was 44 years old. And um, it was the moment when I had to really, I, a person who had for, for all of my life been a pleaser, and looked for the affirmation of the outside world to confirm that I was okay. I had to really say, um, am I not okay because the outside world doesn't think I am? And I determined, no, I'm just, I, I'm not going to listen. I'm, I, I, I hope, I won't say I'm not gonna listen. I hope I always can hear um, loving and constructive criticism and thoughts about what I have done that has been wrong or hurtful or could do better. But um, I knew that I wasn't the person that I was described as being. I, you know, I sometimes tell the story of right after At Home in the World was published, I went to the Key, Key West Literary Seminar. I, thanks to the invitation of my friend, Judy Bloom. I would never have been invited if it weren't for Judy because I was persona non grata that year. But as I took the stage, we're talking about the winter of 1998 or, the, or 1999, the beginning of 1999. As I got up on the stage to talk about a memoir that I was deeply proud of, a story that was true and real of an 18 year old girl being asked to leave her life and transform herself to adapt to, the, to this very powerful man. Um, one entire row of very famous, very celebrated literary figures got up en masse and walked out of the room. That's, that's so what do I do at that point? What do I do at that point? Do I just sort of, you know, go slit my throat? Or do I say, I don't think I'm going to let their ignorance, I'm sure they never read the book, they didn't stay around to hear what I had to say, um, tell me who I am. And it's actually been an enormously freeing thing to have 
been so criticized and to have survived such criticism. And, and that's not the only time this happened. I've, I've done many things that, you know, that people have been shocked by and um, have written about, you know, with, have excoriated me for. And usually the reason they know about them is because I tell. <laughs> I tell. That's interesting. <laughs> It, you know, it sort of reminds me of, you know, how vilified Monica Lewinsky was when she was young, just this young little intern and she was the butt of all these jokes. And of course, I was not compared to her. I, at oh, home really? In, you were? I didn't know well, that. Well, World came out the same fall as, as her book. And, I, and I, I felt enormous sympathy for her at the same time that I also felt somewhat offended. I've been a writer for decades. I was not telling a, about a celebrity relationship. Right, right. I was, in fact, the book that I was writing was about much more than, it was not a book about Salinger. But yeah, I mean, the list is long of women who have been attacked and condemned for telling the truth. Yeah, yeah. And luckily that is sort of changing. I wanted to ask you, oh, also the second question was by a woman named Priscilla. Thank you, Priscilla. I wanted to ask you, do you feel like you should be writing? I know what your answer is going to be, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Do you feel like you should be writing about the pandemic itself and the political situation? Or do you well, feel like those aren't the stories you want to tell and so you're not going to? I'm I mean, I, first thing I would say is I, I, I regard myself as a very political person, although, frankly, I don't know what it means to not be political in these right. times. Right. Not, right. It, it, political means caring about health and children and, and nature, the environment and the future and, and our, our fellow men and women. And, but um, it is not my job to... Um, to proselytize in my writing. It's my job to tell a story. And right. in the course of telling stories, I think that, that I don't even want to use the word messages, but there are lessons right. to be extrapolated. I'm not going to, oh, this kitty is stuck. Um, I'm not going to spell them out for you. Um, I, I'm a very active person on Facebook. So I, you know, I'll often respond to what's going on in the world on Facebook, but I think it's way too early to know what the pandemic story is. Yes. I'm glad um, you said that. Yes. There will be, I think there will be extraordinary, extraordinary fiction, nonfiction, and, mm -hmm. and there are already wonderful short essays that, you know, I'm reading online that people are writing, but but I, we are still in the middle of the story and oh, we right. don't know how it will land. I, I published a novel um, on 9-11, uh, The Usual Rules. And I, it was probably, I'm actually pretty sure it was the first novel published after 9-11 uh, that dealt with a 9-11 loss. The, the central mm -hmm. part of that book is a is a 13 year old girl whose mother goes off to work that morning and never comes home. Um, and I wrote it, I started writing that novel a month after. That's but, so soon. But in fact, that was a very, that, that was a, a very different situation. I wasn't really writing about 9-11. I was writing about the loss of a parent. And that is a universal. Um, the pandemic is very specific and particular. And we are still, I'd say that not just about the pandemic, but about 
any life experience that you're in the middle of, you, you, need, you need your landing place before you can step back and know what the story was. Um, in the case of At Home in the World, I needed 25 years of perspective on what happened with Salinger when I was very young to, to tell that story, partly because I, it was such a forbidden story. Um, the second memoir that I published, The Best of Us, that came out um, in 2017, the one that you spoke of, that deals with, I never think of it as a book about the death of my husband. I think about it as a love it's of story. Light. It's a love story. Um, but um, I, I started writing that book the night Jim died. Um, I, woke I up remember in, reading that in the, the book. The night and next to Jim, and he had been very, very sick for a very long time. It was hard to even know if he had died. I had to lie there with my ear to his chest. But, and it was one in the morning probably. And I hadn't written, with the exception of one modern love column, I hadn't written anything in 19 months since his diagnosis. Facebook posts, but nothing else. Um, but suddenly I felt compelled to do this thing, to tell this story. But I had to, as much as I knew intellectually that Jim was going to die, I couldn't have told that story until, until he had taken his last breath and I had sort of been, known what it was to be in that room at that moment. And then, and then it was the only thing I could do because it's what I've done all my life is tell, first I live the story and then I tell it. That's very good advice. We have another questioner from James. How James, does, James, how does teaching inform your writing and vice oh, versa? That's a great question. Hugely, hugely. I've been teaching um, memoir. Um, uh, I write fiction, but I only teach memoir for 25 years, James. And in the course of those 25 years, I have heard hundreds of stories. Um, I, I have yet to meet a person who comes to one of my workshops who doesn't have a story to tell. Often it's not the one that, that, they, that they came with, that, the, that their manuscript was about and that they think they wanted to tell. Um, but we find their story and they always have them. And it has hugely expanded my, my understanding of the, the, the range of human experience. You know, I've gotten to, I feel it's been this huge gift um, I don't know. Do you teach, Caroline? You must. I do. I yes. do. I love it. I love it. I, I get to have more lives yes. or access to more lives. Um, I don't rip off anybody's story in the circle. It's a, it's, a, it's a circle of trust and their stories belong to them. But every time I finish hosting a workshop, I am exploding with stories I want to tell. Um, and it also makes me feel so lucky to get to be a writer. Yeah. I want to ask about, because you do so many different things. I was absolutely fascinating that I read that you've recorded your own books. You got to do your own audio books. Oh, and, your son, and your son did it. Tell me, how does that feel? Does that does it make the book into something new for you? And while you're reading um, it, you think, oh, I wish I had had this character say well, all, this line. I What I really wanted to be was an actor. Oh. Um, and I grew up in a household of two parents who were both who both had beautiful voices and and recited literature mm -hmm. um, my father was in his 50s when I was born and he came from the generation and he was British uh, uh, where 
you memorized great numbers of poems. My, my father had all of the Bible committed to memory, the Old Testament, and my mother, a, a huge amount of Shakespeare. Uh, um, are you hearing me okay? Yeah, I hear you fine. I'm, I'm getting a message. Okay. I had an unstable connection. So okay. I was hearing poetry. I was hearing literature. Um, I, I care a lot about the rhythms of language and, right. and performance matters to me. I mean, good performance, authentic, not performance, but reading well. Um, so it was a real natural for me to want to read my work. I, when I'm writing, I don't know if you do this, but I, I read my work out loud. Oh, yeah, I do too. And, and so I, I, it needs to sound right. And you discover a lot when you... So anyway, it's a joy to, to do my books. I've done, I think, my last six books I've recorded. And I, I hope to always... The only reason that I didn't record Labor Day... Um, was that the the point of view, the voice is a male voice. And oh, right. My, my son, Will, my younger son, is an actor. So, and he actually does audiobooks now. He's done. Oh, that's wonderful. So, Willie, Willie did a great job on Labor Day. Um, uh, but all the us, all the others I've done, and I, I hope I always will. Yeah, it's, it's just. A I pleasure. love that. So, let's move into like the other thing that you do is with, with movies. When you see your books translated into movies, do you feel. Well, let's like it's let's a different it. entity. It's only happened twice, Caroline. <laughs> yeah, twice is a lot. Twice is yeah, a lot. And they I'm were lucky. big movies. They were big, big movies with big, big stars. Um, that's an amazing thing. When you saw that, did you think, did you recognize that it was a different way of telling your well, story? I think one of the things you have to do when a book of yours is, is adapted for film is let it go and accept right. it is no longer your child. It, you give it over to the director and to the screenwriter and they have to have their vision. That said, um, To Die For in particular, I would say was a very successful and very gratifying adaptation of, of my novel To Die For. It's, it, it, I think Buck Henry did, who died just recently and was a dear friend, uh, did a, a fabulous job. I think it's one of Nicole Kidman's best performances. Oh, it's a wonderful movie. Um, and it's just playing a kick, you know. Uh, Labor Day um, is set in the year 1987, and um, the, the the film the filmmakers took over an entire town in Massachusetts, Shelburne I Falls, read Massachusetts, that. I read that. and transformed it into 1987. It, you know, to pull up into this town and see it filled with cars that are you know from that year and people wearing the clothes of that, and it's all it all came from something that was in my head. It's pretty thrilling. Um, I think maybe why I've been fortunate to have two books made into films is that when I'm writing, and I give this advice to writers, I'm sure there are writers listening right now, um, I like to think of myself as making a movie, but making an extremely low budget movie on, on my computer. So you think and visually? I, am, I think, well, not just, I've, I, and the sound and the editing and the lighting even. Okay. I'm the I'm the movie star. I'm the costume person. I'm definitely the camera person, knowing when to zoom in, when to zoom out, when to cut. Um, and I'm trying to replicate a, a, a movie kind of experience for the reader. And, and, and so my books tend to be, I'd like to think, that they're, that they're unusually um, adaptable for film. Mm -hmm. uh, they're cinematic. A number that haven't been made into films, I could picture those films. Um, but um, and I'm 
as we talked earlier, I, I, I'm sort of hoping that At Home in the World will become a film. It's, it has some hope of that. Um, but, but partly it is that I think readers of today are different from readers of 100 years ago. Um, oh, yes. I don't think that a reader of now could has the patience and the attention span to um, to sit with even you know a brilliant storyteller like Charles Dickens. They want they want that story to move along. Right, right. I know in my writing, I forget which book it was that I was writing when I was watching Breaking Bad. I think it was, I think it was probably um, after her. It was my novel mm -hmm. after her. And I was hugely influenced by Breaking Bad, not by the story, but by the pacing and by the cutting and the, I, I wanted to make that happen in your head. That's so interesting. That's so, so interesting because one of my books, I was watching The Killing, the first season of The Killing. Oh, yes. And that just got me. And I thought, wow, I can learn from this. And that's exciting yes. when that happens. Yeah. No, I... I Television, good television. Good television and good film. I, yeah, I, and I actually think that television is kind of ahead of the game at this point mm -hmm. from what a lot of film mm -hmm. is doing. Um, I, I'm a student of, of some of those series and I learned You can that. learn a lot. We have another question. This one is okay. from our producer, Jenner Payon. She wants Great. to know, um, when do you think you'll be back in the United States? <laughs> and what do you think? <laughs> and I would add to that. And what do you think that will feel like? I'm, you know, it's going to be difficult. Um, I think I mentioned that I came down here to host my annual writing workshop, which is a, has a 20 year tradition. Every year for a week, I bring down about 16 writers and we work very hard for a week on memoir. And I hosted it this year. And over the course of that week, the world changed. Um, not all the women made it down, but eight did. And the airport closed and flights shut down, but six women went home and two chose to stay. So I've been living with two young women who are, if you add up both their ages, it's one year younger than me. Um, oh, I love and it. We have created this wonderful creative community. One is a composer, one is a refugee activist and writer. Um, and we do our own thing, but we meet at the end of every day and make a wonderful meal and sit by the lake and talk about whatever is going on in our lives. And I will miss that. I will, I'm, I'm, we are now sort of talking about how we will make that transition. I expect I'll go home in about a month and I, and home for me will be, it's a little hard to know where home is because I'm, I'm going to college right now. So I have a little apartment in New Haven, but um, I will be spending the summer in a little cabin that I have in New Hampshire. Oh. So I'll go to New Hampshire. Um, I'm teaching a writing workshop at the end of July so that I'll have enough time to sequester myself for two weeks before that workshop and um, and swim and be sort of gradually integrated into the world. But um, I'm sure it will be hard. Um, I have, it has been a huge gift to be in this place and um, I get to, I get to swim every day, I, just that. I get to be in a gorgeous garden. I think I wanna see if you can, I, I'm going to just turn this around. I don't know oh if you my can see my God, garden. it's beautiful. It's, it's, there's so many flowers and orchids and plants. And, it's just, it's soothing. It's just uh, soothing to look at You probably that. won't see the volcano because it's going to be too backlit, but I'll just oh, turn it around. Oh, look at that. Yeah. 
There is That's, a volcano there. Oh, there yeah. it is. Yes, there's a volcano. Yeah. So anyway, it's in answer to your question, it will be hard. But I also- Oh my goodness. I also okay. look forward to the people I, seeing the people I love eventually. Right. Um, and you can always come back. You can always come back to this paradise. I always do. It, it, it may be a while before I am allowed back in because this country has been very strict with its borders as it should be. Oh. Um, so, but I will come back. I will, I always come back to Guatemala. Okay. I need to tell you that the last question about when you're coming back was not from Jenna Payon, but was from April. Um, Dottie in the audience, I, I see I got the right name. She wants to know, who do you like to read? And then I have one more question for you about pies that I'm dying to talk about. But first, tell us, tell us who you like to read and why. And do you read when you're writing? I, I do read when I'm writing. Um, right now I'm actually reading Anne Patchett. I'm reading The, the Dutch House. Um, I read a lot of short stories. I go back to Alice Monroe and Raymond mm -hmm. Carver all the time. I just downloaded um, a Kent Haroff novel. I love him. Um, I, I often make my choices based on voices that, that I think will be helpful. I'm not, I, I'm not trying to imitate those voices, but there's, I want to be in a certain kind of world. Um, I listen to a lot of music, not while I write, but before That's I That's interesting. What music? Is, does it have to do um, with the book? or um, I create a soundtrack for my characters. So it could be a, a heartbreak country and Western soundtrack. It could be a 1950s, I, for after her, I had a character who was a total Dean Martin kind of a guy and I listened to a lot of Dean Martin. Um, um, I, I think I played the song, My Sharona, about 500 times <laughs> while I was writing after her because there were some teenage girls and it was the summer of 1979 and that was the song. Um, I have to tell you, I actually, I've only recently started confessing to this. Um, and it's particularly difficult. I won't say embarrassing because I just, I'm just, I don't let myself be embarrassed by things. Okay. But it's difficult to say this to somebody like you who I know reads, you are such a wonderful and generous reader, Caroline, and you read Thank other you. alleys and you, I, I have had a big reading problem all my life that I haven't talked about. And I've kind oh. of, kept it secret because it was so embarrassing that, and I would be asked the question you know who are your favorite writers or you know what books are you reading and I, I couldn't even think of it sometimes um, and I there were so many books sometimes books written by my dear friends that I should have read that I hadn't um, I'm a very slow reader I've always known that but then I went back to college a year and a half ago and I took a French class with a very smart French teacher. And I had my very first quiz. It was the first quiz I'd taken in 50 years, you know? And I thought I was gonna do really well. I'm good at French. And um, she called me up after the quiz and she said, um, I had done terribly. I got a D on the quiz. Wow. And she called me up and she said, have you ever been tested for learning differences? That's interesting. I kind of choke up when I tell this story because nobody my age was tested. They didn't. That's right. They That's didn't right. Exist. And but the minute she said it, I knew. I, it was as if she had told me something about myself that I had, I had experienced the consequences all my life without ever naming it. Um, so because I was at Yale, 
and Yale has, you know, state-of-the-art everything. Um, I was sent over to the Learning Differences Center, and I had a series of interviews to see if I'd qualify for this testing, because it's very elaborate, expensive testing, mm -hmm. and yes, I did. And it was all part of my Yale program. And I discovered that I have massive ADHD, actually massive. Wow. And as a result, I am not a well-read person. One of the things actually that has been good about being here is that I have done better at reading than I normally do because I get so distracted and I'm, my world is sort of narrower here. But for me, you know, when somebody sends me a book and says, you know, would you write a blurb? Um, I so appreciate your, the way you do this, Caroline, because I know you, you read a lot of galleys. For me to read somebody's novel is probably a, a three or four week proposition. Wow. Yeah. So um, anyway, just to say that, and I actually, this wasn't terrible news when I got my test results. I would think it would be a relief. It was a, it was know, a relief. To and it, know. And it, and it, it was a gift, and um, mm -hmm. and it also helped me understand some things about myself that I like very much. I one of the things that I'm sure there are people listening who have ADHD, and maybe there are some people my age who were never diagnosed. You know, for whom right. will apply. Um, the same things that have made it so difficult for me to read um, make it are are partly why I wrote Labor Day in 12 days and Baby Love in two weeks and The Bird Hotel in three. I can hyper-focus. And when, when I'm distracted, I'm completely distracted. I'm doing a million things. And when I'm at my desk writing or wherever it is that I'm writing, nothing else exists. Um, this was a problem when I had young children, of course. So I did, I wrote short, <laughs> but couldn't do that. That's great um, though. And so, yeah, I, I, and I actually think looking over my books, I think they're books that um, are good for people who have ADHD. I sometimes get, I, at least once every two weeks, I'll get a letter from somebody who says, I have a reading problem. I, I have a really hard time finishing books, but I always read yours really easily. And oh, I don't think that's that I'm like point. writing easy books. I think I'm writing stories that somebody like me will stay with and um so anyway um right now i've i've probably read more books in this three month stretch here um i've been reading some history i'm i'm really interested in american history i was taking a civil war class and i i managed to actually keep up with my civil war reading but it was hard it was hard that's so interesting. Okay, the last and important question is about pie. You're to me that seems like a wonderful metaphor where you take all these oh, things um, and create this delicious thing, and it feeds people, and it looks great, and it smells know, great. Yes, I. I mean, I don't want to make more of it than it is. But my mother, um, who was brilliant in so many ways, was also a great pie maker. And uh, 30, 30 years ago, um, she was diagnosed at the, at the age that I am now, 66, she was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor and we knew she was going to die. Um, I didn't know then how young 66 was, but I went to take care of her that summer. And um, uh, 
my mother was a wonderful hostess and her friends would, um, she was living in Toronto and her friends would say to me when they came to say goodbye to her or just to see her, we're going to miss her and we're going to miss her pie. So I started teaching her friends. The first thing they said was, can you give us the recipe for her pie? Right. It's good pie. We're speaking of crust here, of course, because that's the tricky part for people. Not, not for me and not for any of my pie students. Um, every pie recipe is the same. It's how you handle the dough. And the only way to find out is, um, is to see somebody do it, to be in the room with them. So I started teaching my mother's friends how to make a pie. And um, I probably gave 15 pie lessons that summer. And when my mother died, which also marked the end of my marriage to my children's father, it was a very hard That's very my hard. Life, fall of 1989. Um, I found it a very comforting thing to make pie. Um, and at first I was just teaching my friends. And then I started a tradition of opening up my house every um, Thanksgiving to people that I didn't know to make pies for the soup kitchen in town. And then I started um, teaching pie to raise money for candidates that I liked. So I, I, I had a, the dough for Obama raised, I think, $10,000 for Obama. And I, I'm sure I'll be back to work baking this, this fall. Um, um, but it is, it is a meditation, of course, and maybe mm -hmm. it goes back to the ADHD. It, it centers me. It focuses me. If I'm upset, if something hard has happened, I take out my rolling pin, not to bash it anywhere, but I take out my ingredients. I lay them out in the counter, whatever hemisphere I'm in, whatever is going on in my life, I can always make a pie and I can hand that on. I've taught both of the young women who are living with me here to make pie. And I know that for the rest of their lives now, they're going to make good pie. Make pies. And they'll teach their children how to make pie. Um, that is wonderful. We have a quick comment from Andrea. She said, oh, this is lovely. She said, thank you, Joyce, for sharing this. My husband and son have ADHD and have a rough time reading long books as well. That's oh. lovely. Oh, well, I bet, I don't know how old your son is, Andrea, but um, uh, he might, well, I can't say because I don't know his age, but, but I, my books, um, my books might, might work for you. Um, and, and I also think it's so important to recognize the gift that ADHD is, as well as the challenge. Um, you know, one thing I want to be sure before we part, Caroline, um, sure. because as I've mentioned, a real passion of mine is helping other people tell their story. And um, I, I, I mostly have been just writing all my life. I, mm -hmm. I haven't, you know, I'm not, I don't have some other job, but I, I have hosted writing workshops and I've loved that. And now that for the moment, I, I'm not doing that. I will again. Um, I want to steer people who who would love to, who have a story that they would love to tell to my online classes. Um, Great. On, it's Creative Live. And there are, I'm really proud of these classes. They're, they're, um, so that it's, a, it's, um, it's everything that my mother ever taught me. <laughs> she taught me well. 
That sounds, that sounds absolutely amazing. Um, I, I cannot thank you enough, Joyce. This is so much fun to see you. Oh, it's so much so fun, fun to see you. I don't know why we, we, why we have to wait for books to come out to do this because- You know uh, what, because oh, we we're like doing yeah. 8 million things at once. And yeah, um, I appreciate this so, so much. And um, everybody who is listening, um, you should buy every single one of Joyce's books, preferably from your favorite indie bookstore. Um, oh, Joyce, you were gonna mention a favorite indie bookstore. Oh yes, I was. I'm gonna to say Toadstool Books in Peterborough, New Hampshire, because I'm a New Hampshire native and wherever I ramble in Rome, I always go back to New Hampshire. That is great. So buy, you know, buy from your favorite indie, you can buy from bookshop.org. Um, you will love all of Joyce's books and, um, Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joyce. I'm just so, so happy to, to see you in your backyard. Really, really good. And this will be, this will live, this will live on Facebook. And um, I will talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to help other book lovers find us. Join us next time for a conversation with the legendary fantasy author, Jeff Vandermeer. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning.